Romans 15, 13 said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope. The hope principle. What is hope? We all have different ideas about what hope is. We use hope in a variety of different ways in our language today. I hope I get better grades. I hope I get an allowance. I hope I get a certain Christmas present. I hope my parents are not mad. I hope my wife is not mad. I hope my husband's not mad. I hope that I'll do better next year. I hope, I hope, I hope. What does it mean? Well, I want us to look at the definition in our culture, what hope means, and then there's a biblical understanding of hope, and it's quite different than what our culture indicates and what our culture communicates. Bobby Knight, many of you remember him if you're a little bit older, was a longtime coach of the Indiana Hoosiers, won three national championships, was there 29 years, uh, left in a, a, a rather negative kind of way, but it, it ha- those things happened. Went on to Texas Tech, where I believe he coached for about seven years. Um, and uh, he has recently, I say recently, the last couple of years, wrote a book about the power of negative thinking. You've heard about the book by Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. He wrote the book, The Power of Negative Thinking. And in The Power of Negative Thinking, Bobby Knight says, the worst word in the English language is the word hope. He goes, I despise the word hope because hope never does anything, never takes you anywhere. It's all about preparation and hard work. Preparation and hard work is the only thing that ever brings meaning or purpose or success in life. Hope should be written out of our dictionaries. That's one view. Let's look on the other side. Pre-World War II, there were three very famous psychiatrists, two that were already psychiatrists, one who was basically an apprentice in training. One that you're very familiar with is Sigmund Freud, and Sigmund Freud did a lot of work, and he was trying to find out what is it that ultimately drives man? What does mankind ultimately live for? And through his research and study, he came up with this solution or with this answer. It's pleasure. Man ultimately exists for pleasure. He wants pleasure, and that's what drives him. That's at the root of everything of his life is to ultimately get pleasure. So that is the ultimate drive and purpose of mankind, pleasure. There was another uh, psychiatrist, both of them ironically, matter of fact, all three of these guys uh, were from Vienna. And um, the other one was a guy named uh, Alfred Adler, a very popular, very successful, very prominent psychiatrist himself. Through his research, he came up with a conclusion that man's ultimate desire, his ultimate purpose, what drives him to get up every day is the desire for power. Power. Freud says it's pleasure. Adler says it's power. There was a third who was a young guy, and he was uh, completely enthralled by these two psychiatrists, and his name uh, was Viktor Frankl. And he began to put work out even at the age of 16, 17, and 18 years of, old, of age. And uh, both Freud and Adler were quite impressed with him. But then the war came. And because of Adler and Freud's status, they quickly got out of Europe. But 
Young Frankel, Victor Frankel, was still there, still there when the Nazis came in, and eventually they carted him off to a concentration camp. And that's where he was for the next four years of his life. <clears throat> he had been pondering which was right. Was it Freud or was it Adler? But there in the concentration camps, he began to realize, you know what, I don't think either one of them are right. He noticed something that would occur after Christmas each year. It didn't matter how big you were, how strong you were, or even how healthy you were, or how well-fed you were. He noticed that there were a considerable number of prisoners who would die the week after Christmas. And he began to study, and he began to ask questions, and he began to, to do research. And what he found was that many of them had the hope that they were going to be rescued by Christmas. They, they had a hope in someone or their army, some nation or some individual, maybe their loved ones, people that they knew were going to make sure that they were rescued, that they wouldn't have to stay in this consecration camp. But what happened? Well, they were there and they realized Christmas had come and they still had not be res- been rescued and they gave up hope and they would die. Yet there are others who were in a lot less health, had a lot less healthier bodies. Uh, they were a lot thinner. They were a lot more malnourished. But yet they were continuing to live and to go on. And what Viktor Frankl proposed after four years of living in a concentration camp was that hope and a meaning, having a meaning, having a purpose, whether that purpose was someone or something was the most powerful motivator in life. It's the reason for which everyone lives, if there's a meaning or a purpose. And without that, people have no hope. Well, it's interesting. I would uh, agree with Frankel and Knight to a degree, and with Knight that, um, you know what? Our hope has to be in someone. It's not just wishful thinking. What does our culture say hope is? Well, we know this culturally from some people, their hope comes from their disposition. Their disposition. I'm just, I'm kind of born a positive person, or maybe you've been born a negative person. Some people just have a more positive uh, personality. Some of them are just more hopeful by nature. And some people, it's just a little bit of their DNA that they're just a little bit more hopeful people. Some choose to be hopeful. They, they choose hope. They say, you know, I'm going to choose to believe And I remember I used to work with a guy like this. I'm just going to choose to believe the best. I'm going to choose to hope this is going to work out. While others will borrow their hope. In other words, they get around people who have hope, who have an optimistic view, who believe things are working, and they will take their hope and they'll say, oh, because they're hopeful, I I can be hopeful. But the problem is, is if those people go away, they're kind of left with nothing. And then some have what we call bargainer's hope. Kind of the karma philosophy. You know what? I'm going to do good things, and then that means good things are going to work. Everything's going to work out for me because I do some good things. I try to help people. I try to do some things that are good. And so if I do that, I'm bargaining that it's going to happen to me. So I'm just counting on the principle of karma. Others just have false hope. Uh, They listen to politicians, and they think, if if you elect me, you're going to get this. And they think, oh, the world's going to be better once we can elect this guy. And that's a false hope usually. Or maybe it's a false hope. Sometimes I have false hope. I remember a lot. I used to think that I was going to be a professional athlete. That was a false hope. If I had it today, it would be really a false hope. There's there's no hope. And you even think that's funny. Why? Because it's not possible. 
But sometimes we want to believe things are true, even when they're not possible, so we just hope and we just try to live that way. But what is gospel-driven biblical hope? Let me give you a very simple definition of what biblical hope is. It's this. It's confident expectation in the promises of God. Confident expectation. I know it's going to happen because God's promised it. Because he's proclaimed it, he's promised it, and because of who he is. And that's where biblical hope, that's what biblical hope is. That's where our hope ultimately should come from. Now, mature biblical hope will look like this. First of all, it's kingdom-driven. Matthew 6, verse 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things, whatever it is that you need, shall be added unto you. Your purpose, your meaning as we seek first the kingdom of God. Secondly, mature biblical hope looks like this. It's a decision. I have decided to believe. I have decided to follow Christ. I am making the decision that I'm going to put my trust and my hope in Christ. Number three, hope, biblical hope is long-suffering. It's a word we used to see in the old King James Version. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul is speaking here in verse 3 through 5, and he says this, not only for that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, or it does not disappoint, or it is not, uh, it is not without great value. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And hope is gospel-centered. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus said, but, but Jesus looked at them and he said, With man, it's not po- impossible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible through the Spirit of God for the kingdom of God. Now, I want us to look at a passage that I have never used. I've never preached on this passage in 15 years of being at this church, uh, but I want to use it today. And one of the reasons I don't, I've not used it, because I would say it's one of the most misunderstood and misappropriated verses in all of the Bible. Every one of you that's a Christian has heard this verse. Perhaps you even have it in your uh, dining room right now. Maybe you have it on a plaque somewhere uh, in your house or in, in your office. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and we'll get there in just a moment. But let me give you some background on what's transpiring here. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's been called by God. He didn't want to be a prophet, but the Bible tells us in the early part of Jeremiah that while he was still in the womb of God, God chose him. And when he's a teenage boy, probably about 17 years old, God calls him and tells him, I want you to go and preach to the nation of Israel, and I want you to tell them to repent. Now, here's the bad news. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to repent. They're not going to do anything that you say, but I want you to go do it. (laughs) What a great call to be a preacher. And so he does that. The people are involved in idolatry worship and pagan worship. Uh, They have forgotten God. They've synchronized their faith and meshed it with other faiths. And uh, now they are uh, going to be in a bad spot because Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, is coming in. And we know from Scripture God is using him as his instrument uh, of, 
of wrath against his nation because they will not repent. They are not listening to Jeremiah. And so we find ourselves in chapter 29. And by this time, Nebuchadnezzar has already come in. Even though Jeremiah prophesied this, told him to repent, then Jeremiah said, all right, you need to just do what Nebuchadnezzar says. But they seek to fight against him. So he destroys the city and he carts them off to Babylon. And so now they're in Babylon. They're in a foreign country, uh, in a foreign culture. Their beloved homeland has been demolished. And now they are right outside of this pagan community, this pagan nation with different values, with different morals, with different beliefs. And now this is where they are. And it is in this context that we find this chapter. Matter of fact, this is from 29 to 33 is called the Consolation of Hope uh, chapters of the Bible, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is giving hope. The bad stuff has happened, but now I'm going to give you a picture of hope. But I want you to understand the context that this is written in. Now, with that understanding, let's begin reading in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning with the fourth verse. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Remember a while ago, we said they've been taken away. They came in and they destroyed Jerusalem. They've taken all the leadership. They've taken most of the people and they brought them to Babylon. And he said, here's what I want to tell you. I know there are prophets out there who have told you, hey, it's just going to be short and then we're going to be right back. Everything's going to be fine, but let me tell you the truth. Here's what he says to him. I want you to build houses and I want you to live in them. In other words, I want you to recognize this is where you're going to be. This is where I have put you. This is where I have placed you. Okay? Some of you maybe even today here, you're thinking, you know, this is not where I want to be. I didn't want to be in Flower Mound, Louisville, Texas, wherever it is. You know, I was hoping to be in Arkansas by this time or wherever it was that you were hoping to be. But God has placed you here for this point of time in your life. And that's the situation right here. I want you to recognize you're going to be here. So I want you to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So build a garden. Sustain life. Make a long-term plan. Take wives and have sons and daughters. And let your wives and your sons give daughters. So this is not going to be a short period of time. That they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare. Notice what he says in verse 7. Remember, they're not only not in Jerusalem, they're not only not in Israel, they're in Babylon. This is the nation that has conquered them. He said, I want you to seek the welfare of the city. Now again, this passage was written for a specific time, for a specific place, at a specific time. I mean, for a specific purpose. We understand that context, okay? And I think it's always important for us to understand that that background. Uh, They would not... The way that we typically interpret this verse, that's not what they were thinking when they heard this. All right? So what's going on here? He said, this is where I'm going to have you for a while. And I want you to make the most of it. I want you to make the best of it. And I want you to seek the welfare of the city you are in, of the place that you're in. I know this is not, you did not elect Nebuchadnezzar as your president, as your dictator. But this is who it is, and I want you to seek the welfare of this nation, of this place, of this government. And he continues on, and he says, where I've sent you into exile, I've placed you here. This is not by accident. This is not a coincidence. This is where you've been placed. And pray to the Lord on his behalf. I want you to pray for this nation, this pagan nation who who has destroyed your life and your culture. I want you to pray for them. Remember Jesus who said, pray for those who who seek to destroy you. Here we go. Continue on. And then he says, 
Uh, For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Don't let them say, you know, it's just a little bit of time. You know what? We'll still thrive. We're we're in good shape. We're not going to stay here. And many of them were doing this, by the way. They were false prophets giving messages. One in particular said, you're only going to be here two years, then we're going back home. He goes, don't listen. Don't have a false hope. Don't listen to that false message that if you give the right amount of money that all your life is going to be fine and you're going to get everything you want and you'll be wherever you want and you'll get the title you ever want. He said, don't listen to that message and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. Matter of fact, you know what the, if you say you're a prophet and you have the ability to forecast the future and predict the future and God's made you a prophet, you know what Deuteronomy says? Uh, you know what the, the proof is there? If you, if you predict something that doesn't happen, you're to be stoned because you're a false prophet. We need to be careful. I realize we're in New Testament of grace. We need to be careful about making words for God, speaking for God. God has spoken through his scripture, through his word. We are fallible. He is infallible. We make mistakes. He does not. The problem is never God. It's always our interpretation and our understanding and our fallibility. Our sin gets so in a way we can't hear, we can't see. I just say that because there are a lot of people today speaking words of prophecy. And if they're wrong one time, biblically, they're not a prophet. Anyway, you didn't come here for that. Let's continue on. <laughs> Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete. How long? 70 years. Usually when we hear this verse, we're thinking seven minutes. 70 years was the context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. Verse 11, here's our verse right here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So there's two extreme ways to look at this passage of Scripture. The first extreme is to say, you know what, that was only for them and that has no bearing whatsoever. That was only for the Old Testament people of Israel at that specific time, at that specific place, and it has no bearing on us whatsoever. That's one way to look at it, and I think you better at least consider that. But number two, here's the deal. Because of the grace of God, God will often receive his people And as they pray and seek his heart, he has a hope and a future for us as well. It took them 70 years. I don't know how long it takes for you, but can I tell you, it's not about necessarily your dream. It's about the kingdom of God. And when we start to seek the kingdom of God, he begins to reveal purpose and meaning to us. And as we seek him with all of our heart, and as we search for him, we hear him, we experience him. But remember, it's not a direct promise that he said, you know what? Whatever you hope for, I'm going to give it to you. It's not what he's saying. What do you think they were hoping for? To stay in Babylon? I don't think so. He said, but I'm giving you a hope and a future. It's not the one that you envisioned. It's not the one that you had. It's not the one that you wanted. But it's the one that's right for you today. Because of, you, because of where you've been, because of what you've done, because of who you are, this is what's right for you, and this is what I need to do. Because I'm a good and loving God, I'm going to let you prosper in that environment, in that culture, and then ultimately you will be in the new Jerusalem. Okay, so let's go to uh, the end of the book. 
Let's go to the end. Let's go to chapter 33. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And let's look at this one last passage. And in Jeremiah 33, we see here the proclamation, the promise, and the person. Jeremiah 33, verse 14, uh, speaking here again, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities, whoa, um, 14, I'm sorry. Um, I, I should be wearing glasses in case you want to know. But anyway, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jeremiah thirty three fourteen, And in 15, he says what? In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Now, let's go back to 14, if you would for me, please. Behold, here's the proclamation. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. He's making a proclamation. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So he makes a proclamation. He gives the promise. He talks about the promise they made. And then here's the person. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. David was the great king. We know that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. All right. For the rest of that verse, we see in verse 15, it says, And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Proclamation, promise, most of all, the person. God's word has been proclaimed. God speaks. When he gives a promise, he always fulfills his promise. And for you and I, as we look back at history now... That's like Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish theologian, said this. He said, you know what? When God speaks, when his word is given, it had a very specific purpose and meaning for that day. Here's the primary reason it was spoken and given. He said, and for us today, it continues to have meaning. And forever, it will have meaning. What is the ultimate meaning? It's the gospel. That we are foreigners in a land in which sin is rampant. And because of our great sin, we have been removed from the presence of the Holy Spirit, from the presence of the King. Because of our sin, it separates us. We are exiles. But the good news is this, that the God of the universe has made a way to have our sins covered, to have our sins forgiven. And if we will be faithful and, and trust him and put our hope and trust in death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then he will forgive our sins and he will redeem all of that suffering. He will redeem that penalty of sin and he will use it for his glory with a new hope and a new plan. Not the way that you had determined, not the way that you thought it was going to go, not the way you think it should exist, but according to his kingdom, according to his heart, as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then these things are added unto us. You see, hope ultimately is in a person. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you believe the proclamation? Do you believe the promise? And believe the person, the one who can deliver. Uh, there's a guy named Eugene Lang. 
who died just a few years ago, but he was a self-made millionaire. And in 1981, he was invited to come into East Harlem uh, to a sixth grade graduation class. There was this class graduating in East Harlem. I had a chance to go over there this summer, and it's still a difficult uh, school area, but back then it was just deplorable. It was horrid. And uh, when he got there, he was talking to the principal. He said, how many of these kids do you think might go to college? He goes, maybe one if we're lucky. He goes, honestly, Eugene, he said, there'll only be five or six of these kids even graduate from high school. So most of the kids that you're going to talk to, they're not going to finish school. There's not hope. Uh, there's not a place. And this is what their family does. And this is just kind of the way to go as if they have family. And so you're talking to a group of boys and girls who have little to no hope that their plight will change. Well, Eugene Land looked at his notes and he realized that he just needed to speak from the heart. So he crumbled them up, put them in his pocket. And he got in front of those boys and girls, those sixth grade boys and girls. They had just finished their sixth grade year. They had already had kids start dropping out even at that age. There were 61 boys and girls in that little school. And he said, um, I want you to know, boys and girls, there's hope for you. There's hope and there's a future and there are opportunities for you. Some of the kids just had their eyes kind of glazed, just kind of turned their heads. He goes, I want you to know that I believe so strongly that this is what I'm going to do. I promise you that if you will stay in school and make decent grades and graduate, I will pay for your college education. Kids begin to look up, 61 of them. Remember, the principal said there's probably one at most that we're going to go to college, and most of them are going to drop out. So he made that promise, and he went on, and he would come back once a year and check on them. And so all of a sudden, uh, it's graduation time. And 90% of those kids graduated and went to college. You know why? They were interviewing one of the girls that said, were you planning on going to school? She said, nope. Said, what changed your mind? She goes, in sixth grade when he came and he made a promise. He, he stood up there and he said it, he promised it, and I knew he had the money to do it. So I believed it. <laughs> hey, God has made a proclamation He's made this proclamation that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a proclamation, and that's a promise. And whoever confesses a sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of their sins and cleanse all unrighteousness. It's a promise, and it's a person who can pay the debt. He can cover all that you have. That's who we put our hope in today. Do you know that Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior God? Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, I thank you for the the picture of our debt that separates us from you. Lord, our hopes and our dreams sometimes get in the way and we just pursue our own selfish desires, but yet you are always calling for your people to come back to you. You are calling for those who are lost to come and know you. I pray today, Lord, that we would be people of biblical hope, not just optimism, not just wishful thinking, not in false hope, But, Lord, we would believe the proclamation and the promises that you have placed before you and that you are the God of the universe who has the 
power to save, forgive, to write in a new hope, to write in a narrative that seeks your kingdom, that brings you glory, that gives us purpose and meaning for this life and for the life to come. I pray for those who don't know you today that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.